and welcome to the Shiny New Object Podcast. My name is Tom Ollerton, and this is a podcast about the future of marketing. Every week or so, I have the pleasure and the privilege of interviewing someone inspiring and insightful from the industry, and this week is no different. I'm speaking to Nick Bamba, who is the marketing director for Misguided. We were introduced by Dan Brain at Madfest. So thanks, Dan, and the team there for the introduction. Nick, for those of the audience who are listening to this who don't know who you are and what you do, could you give them a a quick overview of your career so far and what you do at the moment? Yeah, sure. So currently I'm the marketing director at Misguided. I've been here now for uh, just over a year, actually. Um, Prior to that, I spent a couple of years working for one of the biggest uh, gambling companies in the world, a Swedish company in Malta. Um, and then prior to that, I spent uh, six and a half years uh, running Asda's digital advertising and George.com, uh, Asda Groceries, etc. cetera. Uh, and then prior to that, I spent time at the co-op group and first group. Um, I've kind of been in digital advertising now for around about 15 years. So my first job was, as you probably remember, in digital advertising was mostly search and web analytics. They were the only channels back then. Uh, subsequently, it's evolved you know, it's quite significantly. And can you give us an overview of what a marketing director does in Misguided? Yep, uh, no problem. So marketing director at Misguided is, is definitely a very, very interesting job. Uh, I won't lie. Very different than some of the previous companies I've worked at. Um, one of the main reasons is probably one of the smallest companies I've worked at. Uh, it's certainly the most dynamic. So the marketing director covers everything. So from uh, paid social through to uh, my typical performance marketing, search affiliates, et cetera. Um, CRM, customer insights. Um, so my team, you know, we also run all our customer focus groups, et cetera. Um, and we book all our ATL media, so it's TV, out of home, print, et cetera. Um, we we kind of cover it all. It's a bit of very, very hands-on. So what we always do at the start of this podcast is ask you a couple of getting to know you questions uh, before we go into uh, the role and your shiny new object. So you talked about paid social search, search affiliates, um, running focus groups and booking TV and out at home. And this is a massive amount of work. So how do you learn how to do all that stuff? Is it a trial and failing or do you have literature that you rely on? Are you, are you a book reader? Do you recommend any marketing books to your team or how, how does that work? Yeah. I, I mean, a lot of it is you have to learn what, what you're doing uh, in, in the actual job, but um, in terms of actual off, off job, um, I do, do a lot of reading actually. Um, I'll tell you what I'm really, really into at the moment. I'm actually going a bit old school. I'm kind of diving into some of the old classics. Um, by that, I mean, um, sort of scientific advertising by Claude Hopkins. Um, I was recommended by uh, someone who I, rec- who I respect immensely to go and read uh, Ogilvy's books. So Confessions of an Advertising Man. I'm a big fan of Byron Sharp, uh, How Brands Grow. So I think at the moment I'm kind of going through this uh, almost uh, go back in time to see what happened in marketing pre-digital, which is somewhat ironic since I've built my career on digital advertising. Um, but there's so many similarities and so many learnings that it's just eye-opening, actually. So I've taken some really good learnings off Ogilvy's book recently. So can you tell me about what they are specifically? Yeah, I mean, it's super interesting, actually. You, you pull out one of these books, um, for example, Ogilvy's and Advertising, and if you, if you didn't know what you were reading, you would swear you were reading a book on uh, email marketing and subject line uh, <laughs> grafting. 
uh, yeah, I know it sounds crazy, but you know, in, in that era when it was heavily on print advertising, uh, newspaper articles and DM, um, it's, it's not changed that much. Like the, the psychology there behind human behavior really hasn't changed that significantly. So some of the things you read, like you wouldn't believe it. You, you would just assume it was like how to write subject lines 101 for email. <laughs> So it's right. so relevant, and I can't even tell you the number of times I've picked something out and sent it to the team. Like I'll I'll photograph on WhatsApp some of the uh, some of the paragraphs and, and send it over. Like there's a whole chapter on uh, like how to make TV commercials that sell. Like literally, like a whole chapter on it in uh, one of Ogilvy's books. Um, I remember sharing that with our creative director not too long ago, saying, "Oh, we should be doing this, or how about this?" It's so relevant. It's, it's it is quite uh, eye opening. And Scientific advertising by Claude Hopkins, was it? Isn't, isn't what I'm familiar with. What, what were the key takeouts from that? So, I mean, there's, there's so many across these books. I mean, the, the, the Claude Hopkins was almost one of the main pioneers of advertising kind of back in the day. Um, I, you almost have to read it. I mean, he was the one who kind of invented um, bringing toothpaste to the mass markets and making fortunes for, you know, one of the big TV, uh, one of the big toothpaste. Uh, manufacturers. I can't remember who it was at the time. It might have been Oral B or, or um, uh, one of the others, uh, Colgate maybe. Uh, anyway, so he was one of the pioneers uh, in that area, in that space, about getting people to think differently about cleaning their teeth, um, about this fresh feeling in your mouth um, versus like this, the medical reason for cleaning your teeth. It was almost like um, appearance, etc., and appealing to our, almost like our human nature of um, vanity, you might want to say. Um, it's absolutely so, fascinating it's fascinating to go back in time to see how these guys used to advertise because the practices really haven't changed that much yeah the the media which we use has significantly changed but actually what underpins it all is quite similar so outside of books what has been the best investment of your own cash into your career which hasn't directly gone through one of the businesses that you've worked for yeah I, you know this is really funny because it's something so simple uh, and so small uh, and really cheap, if I'm honest. Um, and you'll laugh when I tell it to you. It was actually a slide um, projector, uh, like remote control thing. So I can plug in like this USB uh, device into my uh, laptop and I can like flick the slides on a remote control. Um, you probably know them. Uh, I don't know what the actual technical name well, like is. A clicker. Yeah, yeah, like a clicker, yeah. So, Are you kidding me? That's, you, I've done 60 odd of these interviews and no one's mentioned the clicker yet, so I'm yeah, telling yeah, yeah. you more. So you, you, you almost can forget the, the 30 grand MBA I had to pay for um, <laughs> and go back down to a, a 9.99 slide clicker, which, which I think is hilarious. Uh, let, me, let me tell you why, why I think it was the best I think I bought for work. Um, because the amount of times I have had to present in the past to um, the board, et cetera, or, or more senior uh, leaders, and you know, having a, an anchor point, which is like sometimes a bit of a slideshow or presentation, and the amount of times like you have to kind of fiddle with your laptop and change the um, slides, etc. Whereas if you can just stand up and present and click through, and kind of uh, come across you know really confidently and not worry about having to tap around with your computer. So does that change how people perceive you, or is that like an inner game thing where it just makes you feel more confident? So I think, I think the focus then becomes on you. So I think historically, uh, I would probably have hidden behind my laptop and moved the slides around, et cetera. Um, whereas actually leaving your laptop to one side, 
getting up from off the chair, moving it out of the way, getting in front of the audience and just talking to them and not having to be hiding behind your laptop. I think it's just such a powerful interaction. Like you, you, can, you seem to have a much better one-to-one um, kind of conversation. I, I just see, for me, I mean, it was just one of the best things I think I ever bought because it took me away from my um, comfort blanket of a laptop and got me in front of you know, what is a very influential audience. See, I've done, I've done a similar thing and I've bought them in the past, but I lose them because as much as they're good, if you do a good presentation and end up having a great discussion and you sort of leave that meeting on a high or, you know, and it, it's often the first thing to forget. So. <laughs> do you know what? Yeah, I, I've definitely uh, lost, lost, not necessarily lost, but left a few behind and had to go and get it back. Um, yeah. and, and I think the other sort of big tip I would have there is, is you know, rehearse it, make sure it, it, it works. So, um, you know, batteries do go dead in these things and if you're relying on it and it's not there it can throw you off in what can be quite a nervous situation and so, I think I think what is the the clicker's evil twin or evil cousin is you know when you show up to a a meeting and it doesn't matter how senior it is if you've got to plug in your laptop to a plug on the floor underneath the table involves you like crawling around on your hands and yeah, knees yeah, yeah, and it's yeah. the most demeaning thing like even if everyone's like oh don't worry about it you're literally still crawling around at the feet of the people you want to impress or win over no 100 percent. i mean i can't i can't overemphasize really how important sort of these little things are yeah. like they're so important because it's uh, particularly on some of the audiences that you do face i mean i've had some sort of fearsome um board members before um you know just i think first thing is being aware of you know the fact that if you are talking in your slides versus talking to your audience it's such a different um engagement and you know i had a very good coach uh, in different parts of my career who 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 i respect because they called that out so they'd say look nick forget about your slides you know talk to the people in the room you know and unless unless people make you aware of that you don't really know because it's nerves sometimes and then once you start getting a bit more confident in it you know this tool was a really good tool for me the slide clicker um yeah I, i think for me it was a very very important move um, yeah, I think the the most extreme version of that was I did a an event at my old agency, and we somehow managed to get Keith Weed to come and speak. And before he spoke, literally about five hours before he did the presentation, he sent one of his team to go down and look at the deck on our screen. And, and, and they were kind of going through going, no, that you need to make that uh, font just ever so slightly bigger. You need to move that across. And, you, and, and they wanted to watch the videos like all the way through, not just check that it played, but watch the whole video. And she did that three times, went through the presentation three times. And like, it was the most boring thing in the world. And we were like, wow, what is going on? But then when he presented, he stood on the stage and he looked at the audience and he was playing videos and making points and he never looked at the screen. It was unbelievable. He didn't, and he didn't even have a monitor. He didn't have a vanity monitor or anything. He just knew exactly what was going to be behind him. And it was, it, it, I mean, obviously we can't all afford that kind of prep, but it was a, it was, it was a lesson in a, in great presenting anyway this isn't about me I'm, I'm rabbiting on so what other advice have you given to people specifically students like someone who's listening to this podcast who's new to the industry or wants to get into the industry and they're doing all the right things what advice would you give to a smart driven student you know I, probably the most important thing uh, for that particular smart driven person is uh, like be patient 
Like I know it's so cliche. And as you get older, you know, you do look back at your own uh, career and your own behaviors and, and you probably knew you weren't patient and people told you to be patient, but it's so important. And, and, and the one quote that I always kind of um, push on to, you know, my teams or people who I've mentored, et cetera, is, is this uh, learn before you earn. Um, you know, this, it's such a simple sentence, but it's so often missed. Like, I think there's such a huge rush to get up the corporate ladder, get into bigger earnings, but, but you become so exposed. Like, you have to learn your trade. I mean, you can't go from junior uh, exec in a role to, like, uh, director in front of the boardroom in four or five years. It just doesn't happen. You know, you have to learn before you learn. Learn your trade. Uh, and work your ass off. I mean, you said then about Keith Weed, you know, and rehearsing for his presentations. I've seen him before too. He's impressive. But I'll tell you what, I guarantee he puts in hours to prepare. Like I can, I know I'm going back to this um, clicker thing example, but, you know, when I, when I was presenting in front of, you know, one of our old CEOs I've had in the past, um, you know, I've definitely rehearsed time and time again what message I want to get across, you know, in the nights, in the mornings, uh, et cetera. And that's for like a simple 15-minute board presentation, you know, um, to people who I know, because there's some points that you just have to land because you need the decision or the action. Um, and it doesn't just come like overnight, like you have to work and prepare. Yeah, I had a similar conversation with a previous guest who's actually been on the podcast twice. It's Jeremy Waite. He's a, oh, yeah, yeah, uh, I know Jeremy from IBM now. Yeah, yeah uh, well, last time I looked, he was, he was a chief strategy officer for Watson, I think. Um, yeah, and yeah, yeah, sure. and he, he refuses to do public speaking unless he put something like 10 hours into every 10 minutes or something like that, or an hour per minute, something like that. It's, I can't remember the exact number, but it's a massive amount of work. And I'm terrible for just saying yes to things and rocking up and hoping that I can, you know, pull it off in, in some way or shape or form. But yes, learn before but, you earn. That's a great, yeah. great bit but Tom, I think, I think you're spot on there. So some things you're going to have to just, you know, deal with in the moment because you don't have the luxury to prepare. Um, but when you do have the luxury to prepare, then, you know, it's, it's really, really important if you can. That's what I'd say there. So in, in terms of other in investments, you, you've talked about um, people who are new to the industry should invest their time in learning before they expect to be paid the big bucks. But what have the, be, what have the other investments of your time and energy in your career that have, have really paid dividends for you? So I'm going to say two things here, even though I should probably say one. Um, but the first one's really quick. So, you know, get, you need to get yourself a really good coach or mentor. I'm not, I'm not talking about an executive coach who's paid a lot of money. Just someone in the company or someone you know who you really trust who can see you operate in your work environment. Um, I think that's very, very important. Um, it helped me no end. Uh, the second point I would say is uh, the best thing that I've done in my career, for sure, was doing something different for a couple of years. Um, so when I was in uh, Asda, actually, um, I took a couple of years doing something very different. So, you know, my background was in uh, digital advertising and digital marketing. I then flipped to the other side and got the opportunity to, to head up Asda's um, almost like digital publishing business. So rather than buying advertising, I was then selling Asda's advertising to our um, potential suppliers, like FMCGs, et cetera. And it was just such an amazing couple of years thinking about things completely different, working with different people. I mean, it completely changed my perspective on so many things um, because I've been so, you don't see the wood for the trees and it's such a true statement. I've been so blinkered by digital advertising. 
that when I moved to the publishing side around selling media, you just saw the world differently. And it was, it was a brilliant two years. I, I can't even thank the people. And as they gave me that opportunity enough because it really opened my eyes. And what were the, what were the big things that you learned? What kind of stood out for you? So I think relationship building, number one, you know, I, I was, again, I said I had a very good mentor and some of his quotes um, stick with me today. I know it sounds a bit sort of Jerry Maguire-ish, but, um, you know, it, it's so true. So he used to say to me, you know, you, 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 don't, you don't build friends in a crisis. You know, and it's so true. Like, you know, you need to build relationships just day in, day out. And then when you do have a crisis, you know, there's people there who will listen and help. Um, so that's one of the things I definitely learned is, you know, when you come to selling media and trying to get people to, um, to do things, you know, build relationships for sure. Uh, I'd probably say that's probably the biggest take out. So I want to go back very briefly to the, the real breadth of work that you do and that comes under your remit as marketing director, like, all, like through the line, everything by the sound of things. So you must be very good at saying no to things. What type of things have you become better at saying no to in the last few years? You know, this is always going to be such a tough, tough question. Um, because, uh, as you know, the more, the more senior you get and the bigger teams and the bigger budgets and the bigger responsibility you have, you know, you have so much pressure on your time. Like, you have to be able to say no. And I think it really sometimes um, can actually be quite, it can actually quite hurt inside saying no to something. Because <laughs> uh, you have to be selfish sometimes. Like, you know, there's people in my teams, it doesn't matter if it's here at Misguided or have been in my teams in Betson or Asda, where, you know, I really want to spend more time with them, like junior employees, help coach them a bit more, mentor them a bit more. But you just don't always have the hour that they need. Sometimes it has to be like 30 minutes or 40 minutes. And the questioning has to be, um, you have to kind of shape the questioning a bit better um, to try and get to the point quicker. And I think that's what you become more skilled at. Because um, I, I love spending, if I could take my average day, I would, I'd rather spend as much time as possible with my team, you know, sitting down with them, understanding what they're doing, you know, seeing how search has changed. So, you know, I started off in search marketing. So PPC is very close to my heart. I, I'd love to spend the whole day with, you know, one of my PPC team, looking at how they're optimizing the new platforms, how the bid strategies are all changing in Google, for example, you know, what's the bounce rates, how we're trying to combat it. Like, it'd be like amazing. But realistically, I just don't have that time to do that. It's impossible, you know, because I've got like other things to do, like where we're going in two years, how we're going to market in different countries. It just becomes bigger uh, conversations I have to have. So I think for me, I've just become better at saying, not saying no to it, but just being tighter with my time. You know, I've got a family outside of work now. You know, I can't put in, you know, 15 hours a day as I may have done at some point in my career. You know, I have to be really strict now. Well, maybe stick to the 10 hours. Um, six days a week maybe yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. So, you know I, I think you know I, it's impossible to do and it really hurts me when when one of my team says have you got five minutes for this and i have to say no say no like, no to five like, minutes that's brutal like, it is it's, it's a stab in the heart to be honest but then i'll always try and say look i'll be here at six you know i, I don't mean to keep you longer but i will be here later on and i will have five minutes then for sure i'll have 15 minutes then in fact i've got half a night if you want to spend an hour at 5.30 or 6 o'clock if I've not got anything in them. Um, and then it means missing bedtime you know, for one of my kids. You know. but say, I, but another, okay way of say, another way of saying no, isn't it? Or another thing you have to say no to sometimes. Yeah, yeah but, I, but I think, you know, 
like as you become and you have bigger teams, you do want to help people. Like you want to help people grow in their careers because people have helped you. Um, so you really want to give that time. But time is the only finite thing there is in this world. And I had it's an interesting precious gift. I had an interesting uh, podcast chat with Avis Estill at Luxasia. Um, and she says, she doesn't say no, she says, why? So sometimes, can I talk to you about this? And you go, why do you want to talk about this? And she thought it was a really nice way of doing it. So really trying to understand why this thing needed to be talked about. And if they didn't have a that's, good that's answer. A fantastic, yeah. that, that's if, a really fantastic answer, yeah. And if yeah, they didn't yeah. have a good answer to why, then it became easier to say no to. But if there was like a really good why, then we'd be like, okay, well, yeah, we probably should talk about it. Yeah. And, um, you know, in previous companies, I've had, um, I've, I've had bosses in other companies who have, have literally ring-fenced um, like Friday afternoon, for example, between like one and four, which is now the team hour. So anyone who wants to come and speak to them about anything between one and four on a Friday, then it's like an open calendar. Which I think is, again, a pretty, pretty cool initiative, really. Um, yeah, typically yeah. Uh, a kind of low pro- productivity time, I'm, I'm told. But, but you say that, yeah, definitely low pro- productivity for that manager, but probably the best half an hour you know, that, that employee <laughs> has all week. Yes, indeed. So thanks for those really eye-opening answers to the getting to know you questions. So we're going to move on now to the shiny new object. And we've loosely agreed it's going to be the new wave of CMO. So what is the new wave of the CMO? And let the audience understand that in simple terms. So for me, this is quite interesting. I, I, was, I was thinking about what's happening with, um, I would say, my generation-ish, who were kind of uh, digital marketing natives almost. So they were born in... Uh, so yeah, 39, to your context. Um, I might be 39 for a number of years yet, but officially 39 <laughs> this year. Um, so yeah, so I think, you know, when I, when I started my career, like I said, it, it was purely into search advertising because that was digital advertising through and through. I mean, it was 2006 um, when I got into search marketing. Um, and there was really only search and affiliates and kind of email in those uh, days, I say that. Uh, it was way before programmatic, and it was certainly way before Facebook existed, et cetera. Um, but we were kind of, you know, our, our kind of generation and digital advertising in that era were kind of born into analytics and data and like the almost like instant gratification of marketing. So we do a search campaign, and within minutes or hours, you could see results, et cetera. You know, and, and, and I was thinking about this. I was thinking, well... Actually, you know, this is changing now. So I'm starting to see now some of my peer group move into a C-suite position. Um, and um, having worked now for a, you know, a business like uh, Misguided, you know, which is quite a, a young business, um, and the sort of questions that I now get from you know, our CEO, for example, um, you know, they're very, very different than what I would have um, expected from you know, the CEO, or sorry, the CMO and CEOs in the, the time when I started my career in, you know, in 2006. Um, this is so different. Like, give, let me give you an example. So, uh, you know, the boss of Misguided, you know, my boss, you know, quite often, you know, WhatsApp me with um, questions around like um, CTR or bounce rates or director site traffic or, you know, what's our, you know, ROAS in search this week, you know, like really, really granular data driven questions. You know, so, so different than that, um, I expect, were uh, the case a, a number of years ago. Uh, I just think it's a very interesting wave that's coming over us. And that's a really interesting contrast with what you were saying at the start of the podcast, where you've kind of gone back to Claude Hopkins, to Ogilvy, 
and sort of drawn a drawn a link or a parallel or a, or a reflection between some of those sort of more direct response type of copywriting from that era and the requirement of you know driving down uh, the bounce rate or um, you know on a on a website so are we going to see this new wave of cmo become too data driven or is it not possible to become too data centric as a cmo I, th- I think that's probably the danger actually um, you know you can become so data obsessed that you actually forget about intuition um, which I think has served very, very well for a number of years for a lot of very, very successful um, CMOs. And, and you know, my, my point here is not that the CMOs you know, aren't skilled enough now. That's not the point. I think the point is, is it's just evolution. So you know, as those move out of the C-suite and new ones come in, they're just bringing in a different skill set um, so, and, and different expectations too. So you know, as, as, a, as someone born in digital marketing, and now kind of inheriting more of the marketing mix like um, DM or TV or, or um, out of home, for example, you know, the, the, the demands and questions I have over the agency around those channels are very, very different. Like um, I can't, I just find it really, really hard to accept, you know, the publisher or the TV publishing uh, cutoffs for booking media, you know, like a couple of months is like, like in, it just, just doesn't exist in my other world. You know, you yeah. know, I want to get I want to get a YouTube ad live. You know, we we can knock up a creative in a couple of hours, and it can be live tonight. You know, done. Um, uh, upload it to the platform. We start getting millions of impressions. Whereas TV has to go through this cycle and this process. Um, it's just it's just a completely different uh, thing. And, and the sort of questions that we start asking of our agencies and some of the measurement KPIs that we want back just don't really exist. Uh, which is like super frustrating. So, so can we just pause on that? So you say that the kind of measurement you need isn't there. Like, can you expand on that? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not there for, for a good reason because I don't think it can be there. So if you look at like, um, you know, online video, for example, cost per completed view. Um, you, you can't get like a completed view on a, on a TVC. On a right, so you, so you mean that the date you have available for digital channels isn't available for, for TV? Yeah, correct. So when, so when you're looking at analyzing performance of different media channels, you know, to find a, a common thread to compare apples to apples to make a data-driven media investment is really, really tough without having you know, like a significant uh, investment into uh, econometrics or marketing mix modeling, et cetera. Um, it's just very hard to find that red thread KPI that can measure everything in a consistent way. And... Do you think that we are going to start to see more CEOs that have come from CMO? Because last time I looked, typically uh, you wouldn't get a CMO that becomes a CEO. I mean, it happens, but you know, generally it's a CFO or COO that moves into that role. But if we're going to have much more analytical, data-led CMOs, would you think that would mean that marketing is become, going to become more important to businesses or is it so, going to stay the same? So, I mean, it's, it's a, I think it's a really interesting point. So uh, one of the ways we have seen, if you've seen uh, recently, is actually the CMO is kind of yielded to a CCO, like a chief commercial officer, and marketing is becoming more of a commercial function. I've seen that in a number of organizations across FMCGs um, and uh, other, other companies. Um, so that's certainly one option. But I, but I think going back to your point about CMOs taking into CEO role, 
I think there's legs in that as well because I think as the, the more and more we start looking at how to uh, disrupt marketing, um, it demands like uh, some, almost like a, a different type of mindset. It is a data-driven mindset, but also it's about understanding like how do we how do we hack it? Like how do we hack consumer attention? You know, so it's not just about you know mass reach quickly through you know traditional media like TV out of home. And, and that like it's like how do we create you know really uh, great online PR you know really great social media that kind of has that viral effect that everyone kind of dreams of you know there's there's a really really uh, new era building here of like really strong data driven but also like really really creative as well like it's I mean, it's just an evolution right that's how I would see it with all these channels now existing uh, and the pressures that come with all these different channels and the opportunities that come with these channels. It's so vast, and I think the really, the real success, you know, will come from merging the two. So data-driven commercial approach, but actually understanding the need to be creative and hack, um, and find these viral areas that's possible. So just to finish off, I make the assumption. I don't have any data for this, but I make the assumption that people who work in marketing that listen to this podcast are doing so because they are ambitious and want to have successful careers. And if that is true and they want to become the new wave of CMO or be the type of CMO that you are describing, what are the most important things that they should be doing right now at the start or the middle of their careers? So I would say the, there's a couple of things, you know, I think, I think, if we try and say the perfect marketeer is this, uh, this person, X, Y, Z, I don't think that's really going to exist um, because it's such a, almost an impossible combination. It is a perfect blend of left and right brain. Um, so I think if, if you're listening to this and you're thinking, right, where, where do I go here? Um, you know, it, it, it would be very smart to double down on what you're very good at um, and then try and go on a learning program or hire people where you're less uh, good at or where your uh, development areas might be so if you're very data driven and very numerical then you even need to start flexing that creative side by spending time with that team or uh, uh, getting some training in that area um, or, or, or you just need to start uh, doing more of it uh, being frank so rather than taking a stock approach to a uh, solution so let's say you get a problem and your solution is straight away numbers numerical is try and exercise that other side of the brain so how would um, a different person view this or how would a creative person look at this? Um, because there's definitely more than one way to skin a cat. You know, I hate that saying because I do love cats, but, <laughs> it's, it's, you know, I have a couple of them myself. So uh, I, I do hate that saying, but it's, it, it is so true. Um, and I can't hide away from it. Um, there's definitely more than one way to skin uh, everything. Um, so if you are going to go and invest in a big, big TV campaign, there are a lot of alternatives out there competing for that money. Um, that could actually work as effectively, um, but have you actually thought of those or engaged people in the teams who can consider it? You might still go back to, okay, we still need to be on TV. And, and I'll be frank, I've made decisions like that myself. Um, but actually, there's other opportunities there for sure. Um, and you just have to be open-minded. Nick, thank you so much. There was a lot there. Uh, hopefully, we'll be... Uh, we'll get to meet you at, at MadFest and I think the listeners get to madfestlondon.com 
um, uh, there's a, a whole bunch of exciting speakers there. So, Nick, if anyone wants to get in touch with you about any of the things you've been talking about, how would you like them to do that? So, I'll probably say the best way is is LinkedIn. Um, that's probably the best way, I would say. Cool. All right. Well, look, um, I'm absolutely good that we had to leave it there. That was uh, there was so. I, I, I'm, I have too many questions to ask you, but um, we have to say no to some things, don't we? Sometimes. Um, so thank you so much, man. Or, or, or say why? Oh, <laughs> well, I, why? I literally have to go. But anyway, okay. <laughs> thank you so much, Nick. Thank you. Thanks, Tom. <laughs>